Hello, educators and learners, and welcome to the Homeroom with Sal podcast, brought to you by Khan Academy. We're an educational technology nonprofit dedicated to bringing a world-class education to anyone, anywhere. And Sal is our founder. I'm not Sal Khan. I'm David Reinstrom. I'm on the content team, and I'm here to introduce today's show. Sal, or the occasional guest host, presents the Homeroom with Sal and Khan Academy Ed Talks live stream shows on YouTube and Facebook, where they interview notable folks from the worlds of education, technology, finance, entertainment, and more. We've taken some of our favorite conversations from the live show and turned them into a podcast. Without further ado, here's this week's show. So with that... Uh, we're going to talk today, as I said, to the author of both of these books, Urban Myths About Learning and Education and More Urban Myths About Learning and Education. Pedro, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Good. Hello. Hello. <laughs> so the first question I like to ask folks is to tell me a little bit about how you got here? How did you end up writing books about learning and education? Well, it's it's a funny story. Uh, I remember one evening, uh, eight years ago, nine years ago, and I was asked to be the Stettler and Waldorf in a kind of education setting. And my <laughs> only job was to be, give funny remarks. So I thought, great. Um, and halfway during the second talk, at a certain point, uh, one of the speakers was mentioning that we have a creative brain half and a rational brain half. And I forgot that my mic was on. And I oh. said, oh no, my bullshit detector is now in the red. <laughs> and everybody was watching, what, what did you say? <laughs> and and um, um, Every time I still, when I meet that speaker, I still apologize for that moment. (laughs) But he he said to the audience, I have to admit he's right. He's correct. But afterwards, a lot of people (laughs) came over to me and started asking, but is this correct? Or what about this? And I heard so many different myths that said somebody should do something about this. And... um, I was working my PhD, but I had a writer's block, I have to admit, uh-huh. at that time. And so oh, been I there, called, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, well, we all been there, I guess. <laughs> and so I asked, I asked my publisher, um, can I write a little small book about urban myths in education? And that was the starting point. Now the book has been translated in English, Chinese, Turkish, uh, Spanish, and 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 it, it and it has traveled the whole world and I have traveled the whole world talking about this. And you managed to finish your PhD. That's really impressive. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I don't know how I've done that, but I've, I've done it. Yes. <laughs> I understood. So how did you gather all of these different myths? Well, the first book, uh, was pretty easy because we could look at research with common myths and common misunderstandings. And actually, um, if we followed the news just for one year, we already had a lot of them. Yeah. And after the first book, we thought, maybe a bit naive, that we were done. But right. when the first book was 
published, we received so many questions. Yeah, but what about this? And what about that? And could you check this too? And the second book is just based on all questions received for the years after the publication of the first book. Wow, nice. So that was that, yeah, just raised all of these questions for people just starting to hear about it, made them question other things. That seems like that's a good outcome for the first book to make people question more. Yep, correct. So let's dive into a couple of them. We talk a lot here about Khan Academy at Khan Academy about the importance of knowledge, but there's this myth mm -hmm. out there that if you can Google something, do you really need to learn the knowledge piece of it? How well, about that one? What's your what's your take? Well, it sounds reasonable. But the first question is, how can you come up with the right words to Google if you don't know the subject? But the second element, and that's more painful, is that um, the algorithms of, uh, for instance, Google, they are not always aiming at uh, correct answers, but more aiming on what do they think you want to know. And sometimes this can be incorrect. That's one thing, but also if you look at the information you are receiving, and I'm not talking only about fake news and stuff like that, but you have a lot of people who have the same name. And so we have had in the past some very uh, interesting uh, discussions about famous artists, but then they were discussing football player instead of the artist. <laughs> but there is another very important option, uh, important reason, because most of the time you have to come up with an answer straight away. You have to know things to learn new things. If there's no prior knowledge, you have nothing to connect it to. And so you don't have the building blocks for the next learning step. And, and it's, it's a bit of a, a quote I once said, but I think it sums, it sums it up quite nicely. On the internet, you don't find knowledge. On the internet you, internet, you find information. But what you need is the knowledge to fact check and to understand that information. That all makes sense. And uh, I like that knowledge versus information uh, distinction. That's really interesting. And I know the other piece is when you're solving more complex problems, sometimes you need that base knowledge to solve them. And if you have to stop every time to go Google for that base knowledge, you're going to forget what you were doing, solving the complex problem while you're trying to find the answer for the, the base one. Is that, is yeah, that right? Is I, that I, 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 um, it's late in the evening over here. And one of my <laughs> sons was just passing through going to bed. And, and actually, I remember a very nice example of this. Um, a couple of years ago, he had to learn his tables of multiplication by heart, and he hated it. And he asked me, why do I need this? And then I went to a door and I asked my son, can you open this door? Which he did. And I said, now try to imagine you can't remember how to open the door. So every time you are coming to a door, you have to try to open it, try to figure it out how you need to do this. You bang on the door, you use the head for a second. Okay. If it opens, you can only hope for one thing, that there is no second door, because otherwise you will have to start over and over and over again. Now you have to learn the tables of multiplication by heart. And it takes a lot of effort, but pretty soon you'll need much more complex, uh, you'll see much more complex mathematics, 
And if you need to calculate your multiplications at that time, you will lose so much time and energy that so you won't be learning something new. That totally makes sense. Yes. Uh, so I think that that importance of knowledge for all there's not just one reason. There's multiple reasons that yeah. that you've laid out here why why it's important. Uh, makes sense. All right. One of the most pervasive things you talked about your detector going red, uh, learning styles. Uh, that to me, it, it's so common and people just, it, it seems so uh, attractive for people. It's something to believe that there's visual learners and auditory learners, and I hear it all the time. Uh, tell me your thoughts on that one. Well, um, it was one of the very first myths that I encountered that put me on the right track. Actually, uh, a couple of weeks ago or months ago, Dan Willingham was on the show. Ah, uh, yes, <laughs> yes. And it was one of his videos that put me on track of trying to figure out what about those learning styles. And what we've seen is a lot of people recognize it. And first of all, it's true. A lot of people do have learning preferences. Maybe some people like to read or some people like to listen, but there is no, no clear correlation between your learning preference and better learning. But still that gut feeling, oh, it's correct, but I can flip that gut feeling. Just a question you have to ask your, yourself as a teacher. Are you in favor of pigeonholing in education? No, because we think all our pupils are different, all our students are different. Yeah, but if you are using learning styles, you are pigeonholing your students in three, four, the maximum amount with MBTI, 16 holes, 16 boxes. But our children are much, much more complex. Yes, yes. And it, it always is the, when you look at the research, there's just no, it's, this isn't a case where, oh, the research hasn't been done. There's been lots and lots of studies and they just across all of them don't find this effect. And I wonder if there's still, if there's something here about uh, research versus my personal experience that is causing this to be persistent. And that idea of people having a preference. Well, there is something else also happening in science. For instance, in a lot of people uh, write about education. And for instance, an area that there is a lot of research on is on computers and learning. But those mm -hmm. studies not often are being done by psychologists. So what we've seen is a lot of research for the past 10, 20 years done on computers in education, but mentioning learning styles not checking if this theory is correct or incorrect. So you will find actually a lot of research, not really on learning styles, but mentioning learning styles, feeding all the people who think they believe, yeah, but I've read it in a study. Yeah, but that study was not done by psychologists knowing their stuff. They were done by computer scientists. They were done by educationalists, perfect people but they didn't know that they were using that something is that they were using something incorrect right right that makes sense they almost assumed that learning styles was a thing before as an assumption of the work that they were that they were doing yeah yeah, yeah. that makes sense so in that world of computers and in technology uh, also a space that i'm interested in 
Um, no, and we hear really? a lot about dig we hear about a lot about digital natives and that digital yeah. natives want something really different with their education and their system. What does the research say on that? Well, uh, digital natives first was coined by Mark Prensky in 2001 already. And um, it was just based on a couple of observations. It was not based on actual research. And again, it sounds logical because if you give a device to one of your children or your pupils or students, they are very handy with it. But there has been a lot of research and Paul Kirshner and myself, we've done a, a, a review on all the research since 2001. And what we've discovered is that uh, it's not true, it's not the case. You have to make a distinction between uh, the content side and the strategic side on one side and, well, the button knowledge. And it's true, young people, young students are much better in figuring out how some device is working. But if we are uh, talking about uh, the content, but also how to use it, also to know if something is correct or incorrect, then we see that they are not that good at all. Actually, if we look at 30 and 40 year old, they are much closer to what has been described as digital natives than 10 year or 10 year old, 20 year olds. Ah, interesting. I hadn't known that that piece of the, the last part. I remember looking, trying to find in Mark Pensky's book, the research to support it, but he was basically coining a term, but without having necessarily yeah. the, the research to support it, and it caught on. Yeah. And and there's a lot of research and, and, and we've, we are, we keep checking all the research because maybe now it will change, but we didn't find any evidence yet. And in different different regions, for instance, in uh, in China or Japan, we can't find digital natives. We can't find them in Europe. We can't find them in the United States. So sorry. Actually, yeah. it's a very important message because um, it's very important for us as educators, as teachers, we need to train our students in how to handle these devices, how to work on the internet, how to handle the information that they are getting, but also to know when they can use their cell phone and when it's better to put it away. I think that um, the fact that there are no digital natives gives us an extra task in education. Yeah, that the idea of digital dig, digital literacy and uh, what that means is it's so important. But people have to be taught it just like other skills. Yeah, I, I guess so. Yeah, we have a, a question from uh, from Facebook. Akmal Hafiz says, "In today's digital world, we have knowledge, but how can we solve problems?" Uh, that many students, you know, have degrees, but even then, they get lost, and so. I think that I'll ask a related question to this. We've, we've talked a lot about kind of myths of things we haven't found. What does work for learning and particularly maybe problem solving to get at Akmal's question? Well, a lot of stuff works in education. Actually, a lot, um, not everything works and nothing works all of the time, but there is a lot of things we know that can do the job. And we know that um, basic knowledge and, and arithmetics and uh, reading comprehension can help you a long way. 
But then there's also the part of problem solving. We've seen, uh, for instance, from research like project follow through, but also from research by the OECD with the PISA results and things like that, that a base, a good solid basic knowledge can help you and also can help you to solve problems. But then you get, you need the opportunity to get in touch with this kind of problems and get, um, the hang of it. So if you, in education, if you have a good basic knowledge, if you have a lot background knowledge can help you too. But also if you see a lot of examples, good examples of how problems are solved, if you get this not only in one topic, but in several topics, maybe in integrated topics, but then also give uh, you the opportunity to try and fail, but learn from the failures, then you'll get a long way. Just like you have to learn how to read a book, how you to write a sentence, it's also important to learn how to solve a problem. Yeah, so background knowledge, practice with feedback of whether it's right with or feedback. not. Yes. <laughs> and, 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 you know, there's something that I want to add because, um, when people are thinking that when people know we are writing about urban myths, they often think it's black or white, mm. but we use three categories in our books. The first category is total nonsense. First, for instance, learning styles, those are not total nonsense. If you are discussing, um, some other topics like multiple intelligences, then we say it's nuanced. And for some topics, we have to say, we don't know. Because even in science, there are a lot of discussions. Let's take the 21st century skills. It's a topic that's also very popular and closely related to problem solving. Now, there are two um, discussions in the scientific world that we don't have a solution yet but that are really relevant for this kind of discussions in education. The first uh, element we are not sure about is, is it actually a skill or is it rather a personality trait? For instance, creativity. Is it something that you can learn or is it something you need to develop? That's the first point of discussion. A second point of discussion is how generic are those skills because for instance i can be very creative in playing the guitar but it doesn't mean that i'm very creative as for instance a plumber trust me i'm not so how generic are those skills and we don't have the answer on these questions yet um but i do think they are very important to help us further in education yeah so this idea that research is evolving i think is an important one and that we don't always have all of the answers but psychology itself recently has been through quite a reckoning on that some things that we thought were true after trying to replicate those findings we're seeing aren't replicating so well so do you all see right. some uh, some of that pattern too yeah, uh, thank you for bringing this up, actually. Um, Eric Erickson once described that crisis means growth. Well, if that's the case, psychology has been through a major period of growth, the biggest period of growth in history, because it's true. Um, a lot of classic studies have been replicated for the past 10, 11 years and failed. 
And uh, there is a new, new book coming up next year, next summer, uh, The Psychology of Great Teaching. And together with Casper and Lisa, what we have tried to do is trying to figure out what is still standing and what should be left, left behind. And some of the big theories, for instance, very popular in teacher training, Piaget, is one of the victims. But on the other side, there's also great news because yes, there's a lot of stuff that wasn't able to uh, being replicated, but there are also a lot of things that are now standing stronger than ever. For instance, if we look at dual coding, a lot of cognitive science that has been used in education for the past 10, 15 years, we have now a bigger knowledge confirming, scientific knowledge confirming those insights. But Great. It, it has been it has been a very strange period. <laughs> it has, it has. So you just uh, kind of dropped dual coding. Can you tell talk to folks about dual coding if they're not familiar with that? Oh, my, sorry for that. Uh, dual coding okay. is the idea that if you combine images and words, we have two channels in our working memory, a channel for words, a channel for images. If you use them both, there is a bigger chance that will be learned. Okay, but wait, if you um, put too much pressure on one of both uh, ch channels, then you are getting less learning. For instance, if there are too much images, if uh, the images don't relate to what, what is being taught, people will learn less. But also, if you have words on the screen that are exactly the same of what is being said, then the word channel gets overloaded and again students will learn less that that makes sense that it's not just put all the information you can through both channels there's nuance to it and how to do it well and what that looks like yeah, yeah. I, I think that's the biggest task we have as scientists not telling people do this and miracles will happen no do this and maybe this will have an effect and if it doesn't work, please try this. Because um, it's easy for gurus to say, do this and everything will better and you, it will even smell better. But uh, <laughs> in real life, uh, it's much more complicated than that. Can I give you an example? Yeah, please. and it's 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 it, it's connecting several dots because we received a lot of questions about growth mindset, and it's a topic in our second mid book, but also a topic in the psychology book. And Carol Dweck um, is not a guru, and I can prove you she's not a guru; she's a real scientist. Because a lot of the studies that were performed on uh, growth mindset had a very small group of students in, being involved in the study. And for the past couple of years, there has been real replication. And credit to Carol Dweck, she also participated in research on uh, replicating her original uh, studies. And we found out that the effect of growth mindset on average is not that enormous. Well, it's really small. But the main word in my previous sentence was on average, because we see that for some children for some students it can even have a negative effect to um, stimulate a growth mindset but if the average is small or 
nothing, close to nothing, and some pupils have a negative effect, then it's not hard to imagine that other students, other pupils, can have a positive effect. And we see that, for instance, children from uh, younger children, from uh, a more poor background, they can benefit from a growth mindset. Uh, uh, approach. So for us, it's very important not to say throw growth mindset, throw growth mindset away, but when will we use it? For who will we use it? But also keep an eye on the effects because maybe in your case, it can have a perfect splendid effect, but maybe it's the opposite. And then it's you as a teacher or educator or a team to say, let's do something else. Yes. So, Sarah, Sarah Helm from YouTube, you asked uh, if, if uh, Pedro could say something about motivation myths. So there's a, a piece about uh, mindset uh, mindset and how we think about motivation from growth mindset that's, I think, important. Uh, anything else on motivation? Oh, I can tell a lot about motivation because <laughs> there's a lot of, about it in the new book. But I give you two very interesting insights. The first thing we often think about, you have or intrinsic motivation or extrinsic motivation, and intrinsic is good and extrinsic is bad, but it's much, much more complicated. Um, for instance, there are a couple of versions of extrinsic motivation, and I can give you again a very simple ex uh, example. You have a student who wants to become a doctor. She, he or she is really motivated to become a doctor, but he or she is not really into mathematics. But they know this, that student knows that if I want to become a doctor, I really need this kind of mathematics. Then that student isn't motivated intrinsically for mathematics, but has a good, positive, extrinsic motivation. Please keep that kind of motivation. But also, and this will surprise a lot of you, we know that a lot of people think the more passionate you are about the subject, the better. But there is an issue with that. Because we know that if you're really, really passionate about something, but you don't have anything else in your life, then there is this bigger chance that when you have, whenever you get to, into a problem or a hurdle, that you will give up. If you have a passion, but you also have something on the side, something else, uh, another hobby, then you are more resilient for any kind of setbacks you can uh, encounter trying to achieve your passion. So the idea of being more motivated or uh, more passionate is better. It's again, much more complicated than that. Yes. Okay, so this relates to a question from Alex Morelli from YouTube, who says, you mentioned your son not liking to memorize his multiplication tables. How important is student drive in learning? And I think there's a follow-up question of, if a student's not motivated to do something, how do you try to get them to be motivated to do something? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's the $1 million question. <laughs> right. All... First of all, I think uh, we have to accept, even us as a teacher, we are not always that motivated for every single part of the things we are doing. So that's Sometimes just Sometimes I treat myself with chocolate to get through a, a task that I have to do, I know. <laughs> well, you should come to Belgium, the best chocolates in the world. I wasn't paid for that, okay? Uh, but, uh, but going back to the question. Um, 
one of the things is we need to find um, that they experience a kind of success. Uh, so if it's too difficult or too easy, I think a first step is make sure that everything is an possible challenge. It, it's a challenge, but a challenge that they can achieve. Uh, you know, the, the classic concept of scaffolding, a good teaching is building scaffolds to um, for every child to learn. Uh, sometimes you'll need a kind of rewards to get things started. But there is another element, and that's often overlooked. We've all had teacher that, teachers on subjects that we weren't interested in, but surprisingly, we were at by the end of the class because the teacher, he or himself, was so passionate about. And passion can be very contagious. So um, try to be motivated yourself, show this. Try to also explain why you're motivated, but also try to explain why the child needs this. Because I have to admit, uh, discussing my son, uh, again, as an example, I don't like, like anecdotes, but I want to use this to explain something, mm -hmm. is that um, well, he I didn't convince him, but he did it because he thought, well, if my dad thinks it's important, it will be probably be important. But later on, he came to me and said, you are right, I need this. And sometimes you have to ask a kind of leap of faith from your student or children we know you i know it's hard now but you'll get by and then you'll figure out why you need this but one last remark on this if you don't know why they need this why your students need this and the only answer is it's because it's in the textbook or in the curriculum then you're in deep trouble because if you can't answer that question, how can you motivate your children? That, that uh, totally makes sense and sounds like a good place to leave us on. I could have talked to you for much longer, but we are already at the end of our time today. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it was great fun. Thank you. If you want to hear more of Homeroom with Sal or Khan Academy Ed Talks, subscribe to this podcast and tell a friend. If you want to support the work we do here at Khan Academy, visit khanacademy.org slash donate. We're a nonprofit, and we appreciate your financial support in making sure that our materials can reach as many learners as possible. That's khanacademy.org slash donate. That's our podcast, folks. Your host is Sal Khan. This show is produced by my wonderful Khan Academy co-workers, Kevin Dangor, Stephanie Yamkovenko, Dan Tu, Irene Wang, Anthony Nelson, Felipe Escamilla, Irene Chen, Ken Jones, Fail Lundberg, and me, David Reinstrom. Our intro theme is Time Flux by Revolution Void, and our outro theme is Onward by Poddington Bear. <laughs>